0: Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts today. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Will Hutton. Will Hutton is principal of Hartford College, Oxford. He co-chairs the Purposeful Company and is a columnist for The Observer, where he was editor, then editor-in-chief for four years. There's lots to cover, uh, Will, in the kind of 20 minutes we have in front of us, but let's start with, if I may... The, both the societal and the economic impact of coronavirus, especially in the United Kingdom. Will people have kind of short and selective memories when this crisis is finally over and then go back to the situation as it was before? Or do you think without being too naive and too simplistic that there'll be a new, a new regard for the, the public sector, public workers obviously, and the way the UK has to maybe rethink how, rethink how it does things?
1: Uh, there's going to be a rethink. Um... How radical that rethink uh, is up in the air, but a rethink certainly. I mean, I think one obvious area is um, that it's become clear that um, your public health infrastructure, including social care, um, is absolutely foundational. Um, so that there's going to be, and it has to be resilient. And um, We've run the National Health Service with very, very tight margins, uh, operational margins, Um, and I think uh, all that's going to be rethought. I think there will be some of the trends that have already been there before the crisis are being intensified. The decline of the high street, um, the decline of the um, um, written newspapers, and the migration of news online. I mean, that is without doubt being accelerated. Um, And I think there's also um, going to be a there was a debate that was getting off the ground in Britain and America and to a degree in Western Europe um, on resetting capitalism. And the Financial Times led that. There was American Business Roundtable. Yeah. There's a think like tank that I co-chair. I mean, there's a multiplicity of organizations kind of making this case. And I think that the sense that actually we need um, uh, great companies that put societal purpose at their heart um, to have some nobler purpose, than than, see the maximization of profit has become really foregrounded. So that whether it's in social care, whether it's in pharmaceuticals, whether it's in the delivery of kind of um, essential services, you know, you need organizations um, who put that kind of business purpose at their heart. And actually the financial system plainly needs repurposing. I mean, the inability in Britain to get credit um, in the scale and speed um required um to those companies that need it um is is inadequate and it, it reveals lots of shortcomings in the structure of our financial system so i think in lots of ways i think the um, you know the, the this pandemic is going to leave a um a really big mark not least of all and um, and which the imf um spoke about yesterday and the british office of budget responsibility is the depth of the um collapse in economic activity may leave like a lot of scarring. Yeah. A lot of good companies may go bust um, that have viable business models. A lot of people who, uh, you know, had very good skill sets, may find themselves unemployed all for no reason than the pandemic. And so I think there's a, that's going to be a, an element of the future. So there's a, there's a, this is going to leave its mark without doubt.
0: Isn't that the huge, not just the paradox, but the conundrum now facing governments going forward is that on the one hand, the people will be more aware, and, and politicians, even if they're not keen, but will be pushed by their electorates to be more aware of capitalism being more purposeful, as you say, but also a social inequality, social mobility has to be addressed in a more focused and targeted and systematic manner. But then the economic wherewithal to put all that together will not be there because of this huge hit the economy is. Is is now taking will take for quite some time to come.
1: Well, I mean the um, the scale of borrowing in one scenario from the Office of Budget Responsibility, uh, suggesting that the budget deficit in Britain could rise to fourteen percent of GDP. Fourteen percent of GDP. um, You know that hasn't been seen outside wartime, um, and you can be sure it's going to be of a similar order um, in most West European countries. These are stunning numbers, and actually. how to deal with that um, debt overhang and how actually to finance even getting to that debt level is going to raise major principles of macroeconomic management. And yeah, I mean, there will be, again, without doubt, increases in taxation. Um, I think the long story of the kind of decline of income tax, um, declining corporation tax, declining inheritance tax, declining wealth taxes, declining corporation tax, you know, that's over. Um, we're gonna, all countries are going to have to raise their tax base um, by two, three, uh, four percentage points of GDP as a minimum um, in order to service the debt and actually finance the level of public services with the inbuilt resilience that's now needed. Um, and yes, I, I you, know, you can see it. when When Boris Johnson um, kind of leaves hospital after his near-death experience, you know, thanking... A Portuguese nurse and, and a New Zealand nurse mm-hmm. um, for their care and love which and um, no question he says kept him alive. You know you're aware that in 2017 he was part of a Conservative government that um, voted not to increase their wages and um, his Home Secretary has uh, just introduced a, um, an immigration bill that would mean that both of them would have very considerable difficulty in actually working as nurses.
0: it's w- you know, yeah. not a land that's going to be sustainable, I think. I want to come on to migration and immigration uh, in, in a so- second, Will. But before that, I want to go back to your point then about tax, because surely you can, you can see or hear it coming that when people, politicians start talking, or people like you, the need to, to increase taxes across the board, then there'll be the people who are hostile to that, that saying that will simply stifle economic growth. We can't overtax at, at this critical juncture that's gonna happen, isn't it? I think I think. I think, as,
1: I think those debates have lost their sting. I mean, I think that, I mean, uh, it is obvious that you have to spend um, more on resilience um, in your health service and more on resilience in your social structures altogether. And actually that has to be done on a universal basis because, you know, the, the pandemic strikes everyone. So, you know, even the hyper-libertarian <laughs> kind of advocates of um, um, low tax themselves may become victim of the virus. And so they, you know, they need to put their hands in their pockets as well if they want the vaccination that's going to insulate not just them, but anyone who might give it to them. And remember, um, and I think it's very important this, that the um, emergence of social democracy and socialism um, in Western Europe in the last third of the 19th century was associated not only with urbanisation, but with um, pandemics, disease, lack of sanitation, mm. you know, the need for clean water. Um, municipal socialism was the foundation of the left of centre proposition, where even well-to-do members of the middle class recognised that malodorous air, uh, malodorous water, and actually um, contagious disease um, was no respecter of persons. And there was a need for collective effort and and collective taxation. And I think those arguments are going to come storming back. um, And that the long 40-year march of libertarian thinking,
0: um, this will be seen as its high watermark. Okay. Well, you mentioned Boris Johnson. I just want to put something to you, uh, which (coughs) the coronavirus. Would you accept, up to point at least, that when Boris Johnson became leader of the Conservative Party and then and also, of course, Prime Minister at the same time, and then with the election victory in December last year, and then even with the pre-coronavirus budget of his chancellor, Rishi Sunak, that the Conservative Party was showing signs of being much less, uh, much more of a one-nation Conservative Party, certainly, but also maybe almost social-democratic in its alleged uh, intention of spending money on infrastructure, on trying to uh, increase the economic prosperity of the North, all that kind of thing. It's not the Conservative Party uh, a few years ago, is it?
1: It's very difficult to read the Conservative Party I mean the um, I mean it's an enormously successful political party you I mean um, the most longstanding in the world I think um, and the one that's held office more than any other um, and its capacity to kind of junk um, ideology and bad leaders I um, in the service of power is, is well remarked and um, uh, I, th- I, I do think the pandemic is actually likely um, to um, cement the change in the in the Conservative Party so that paradoxically I mean, when Johnson just before he went into hospital mm-hmm. and in one of his video clips um, his very last one I think he signed off by saying there is such a thing as society right and you know on leaving hospital he, he went out of his way in a very good address um, to say the NHS was about um, love, um, and um, you know these are not um, the not the kind of language that we've been look, used to from Conservative leaders for some little while. Um, Were well, bits of that with um, um, David Cameron's big society. He never went very far with it, and I think Johnson certainly um, is is going to want to take seriously his commitments to the National Health Service seriously his aim to leveling up um, and, I, and he will want to argue for a more liberal immigration policy than some of his very right wing supporters, well,
0: so yeah, the Conservative Party is changing i mean it 's not
1: that well, 's right
0: well, I want to come on to the in a second, but not just now uh, the implications there of this changing uh, and you say cementing of the, of the new Conservative Party position uh, for, for the Labour Party under Keir Starmer's new leadership. But before we do that, Will, let's go back then, I promise, to uh, immigration and how, uh, as you say, Boris Johnson in his post-hospital uh, video uh, name check, in particular, two nurses, one uh, from New Zealand, of course, outside the EU, one, one from Portugal inside the EU. And it just makes you think, doesn't it, that this... Um, irrespective of what certain uh, members of his cabinet might be thinking of, still about, a points-based immigration system, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that, as you're suggesting, there will be a new tone coming out of the Conservative Party on immigration. Do you like to expand on that? Well, I think there's... Uh, I mean, I think... Um, um, in
1: terms of narrow-party political politics, I mean, I think that um, you know, there is, the Labour Party has always had the NHS as its trump card in British politics. Um, but there's no doubt about it that you know a Tory prime minister whose life's been saved by the NHS and who thanks it so heartfeltly, as Johnson did. Yeah. That's a new relationship between the Conservative Party and the NHS, um, and it will reflect itself in wages. Um, it reflects itself in resources. Um, it reflects itself in an NHS which has got you know capacity to be resilient, um, and and that's not and, and that's not going to be driven by um, you know, the Thatcherite um, kind of belief that anything run by the state is hopeless a priori. And, and that, you know, the only, in order to prove its point, to prove its worth, it has to be hyper-efficient, more efficient even than a private sector comparator. Um, I think all that's going to be very difficult for the right wing of the Tory party. And here you have a, the conundrum, which is very hard to read. I mean, um, Rishi Sunak, Who's, you know, seen as a potential successor, and been a very successful shadow, uh, very successful chancellor, um, uh, in just a few weeks. But he's still committed to leaving the European Union on January the first of two thousand and twenty-one. Yeah, um, you know, still committed to a hard Brexit, on th- which you know, on every all the other pain that's being inflicted on the British economy is plainly self-defeating, and you know, it's tribute to that neither Johnson nor Sunak would want to do that um, uh, unless they were still frightened of their right and in particular the European Research Group and that whole body of opinion. So, you know, uh, the Tory party is swirling around, it's not, it's not quite certain where it's going to land,
0: but, um, but are, you, so, but are you suggesting, therefore, that this, this newfound commitment to public services, uh, especially at the National Health Service, and uh, and the, the role of immigrants in, in, the, in the provision of these public services in the UK could be relatively short-lived once the coronavirus crisis is a fond memory? No. I'm, I'm,
1: uh, it was always tricky trying to make... Um, uh, Johnson wanted to describe himself uh, at one stage as a Brexity Hezer, HESA being the nickname for Michael Heseltine, yeah. uh, a very pro-European liberal Tory, uh, deputy prime minister and a formidable operator still, even though he's 86, 87. Um, um, a Brexity HESA was a contradiction in terms. I mean, liberal Toryism of the type as championed by Michael Heseltine or Ken Clark or... or um, uh, even Mrs. May, you know, was, was pro-European. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to be Brexit was to be of the right. And, I mean, that whole agenda, I mean, you know, Asia and being a buccaneering, agile state, able to make our own rules and regulations, buccaneering our way through booming Asia, was going to be the recipe for economic success in the future. But Asia is going mercantilist. Asia is going protectionist. Asia is one of the hardest hit by the pandemic. Um, there's no easy pickings in Asia, and suddenly you know the whole um, the whole Brexit argument, you know, looks when you strip it, you know, to be a bit anti foreigner, empire loyalist, harking back to things that are no longer. And the Tory
0: that's the Tory party and its donors who are very influential. That's what they think. Well, I think it's so the th- problem. Isn't the problem interrupting you though? That that remainers like you and I will be accused yet again of trying to re re, re fight old battles that we've lost, and that uh, it's too much to expect anybody to do a major rethink on 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 Brexit when we can't even think about countenance when well, the government at least cannot countenance even an extension of the transition period. Having said that, you say again that this new appreciation or, uh, of the prime minister and other people obviously to to migrants, immigrate, immigrants coming to the, working in the National Health Service, and this kind of broader, maybe more vague, but still very serious, sincere appreciation of that the fact we're all interdependent uh, for all sorts of reasons, not just the United Kingdom, of course. Every country in the world now on the back of this virus is maybe realising bit by bit that we are interdependent. We can't really put up barriers. Um, so maybe there might be some rethink of the, the Brexit debate or that really, really pie in the sky.
1: Well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, um, my view is that had Keir Starmer and his current cabinet um, been in in power um, in the summer of 2019, um, we would not now have a Johnson government. There would have been um, a coalition of the parties in the House of Commons who would have forced um, an interim government and a referendum, a second referendum, um, and he would have won it. Right. Um, I'm, always, I'm always amazed by, you know, when I do, you know, I'm, a, I'm on Twitter, and, you know, um, I'm sometimes accused of, you know, um, playing the same old broken record. Yeah. But I'm still amazed how, how, you know, a, a pro-European tweet can attract you no, know, so much interest. Yeah, So much interest. From, you mean, bi- when we say interest, like, you mean bile, you mean, and vitriol. <laughs> no, I mean people who, people who like it, people who support it, people who retweet it. I, I mean, see, right. You know, and I think, I, you, know, you know, the million people who marched in London, uh, three successive people's rallies, they've not gone away. And right. they're all thinking the same as me. They're all thinking, you know, that actually, you know, our ideas were and our, insistence on European membership was was uh, was justified the open question of course is whether the EU um, will pull through I mean I, I mean I'm optimistically will but I mean you know you bet than anyone know the strains of something
0: yeah, well, let's not talk about that now. We haven't got time, but but let's a final question then. For this podcast will, since you mentioned Keir Starmer, the, since we have this new, more almost progressive conservative party in, in power, certainly as far as the prime minister is concerned, for all the reasons you've explained in the past 20 minutes or so, uh, what what can Keir Starmer do? Is there a there's no longer the kind of the gap in the market to use a crass phrase for him because the uh, that space is now being occupied by by the Conservative Party in, in, its, in its policy decisions. Well, I, um, there's going to be a... I'm,
1: I think, the, I think what, what, what Keir Starmer has to do, and I think he will do, um, is to say we have to reimagine our future. Um, you know, that we can't go back to the status quo ante, that the exit strategy from this pandemic and its economic consequences has to be, you know, putting a series of building bricks in place for a new future, you know, the repurposing of British finance, the reconceiving of the idea of the company, making public health much more resilient. Um, um, just for starters, let alone, you know, treating essential workers better than they have been treated. Um, and Then actually, Mr. Johnson may talk about levelling up, but actually we're the people who believe in it and will do it. I mean, that's the kind of thing he's going to have to say. And he's also going to have to say that You know, in a world of, um, uh, in a darkening world, you know, where you have nationalisms against international collaboration. And actually, you know, ultimately, whose side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the same side of Donald Trump scapegoating the World Health Organization? um, Or on the same side as, you know, President Macron trying to make (coughs) international collaboration in the World Health Organization work? I mean, whose side are you on? Yeah, will. Q will make those points. Now, you have a right-wing press, you have a ferociously loyal Tory party, you know, making way may, may be very difficult. But, I mean, I, Boris Johnson has not had a good um, pandemic. I mean, you I mean, you can say, and I think the fact that our head of government nearly died, you know, is a, is a sign of how lackadaisical the British have been over this, um, rather than how well we've been over it. And I think, I think that, you know, um, in the months ahead, you know, the slowness in which we will emerge out of lockdown, the faltering nature of the support for small and medium-sized enterprise, 101 things are going to expose the weaknesses um, of the way we conduct ourselves in Britain. And that will open up opportunities for Keir Starmer. Um, um, yep, yeah, the NHS as a card is weaker than it used to be. Yes, you know, Boris Johnson, the man who nearly died, led us through the pandemic, is you know, much more of a kind of heroic figure even than he was. But, um, you know, remember 1945 um, when the British servicemen said, um, thank you, Winston, now we're going to vote Labour in 2024. Thank you, Boris, now we're going to vote for Keir.
0: Okay, well, right, we have to leave it there. Will Hatton, thank you very much for your time. (laughs) Thank you, Paul.